All right, welcome back to the Christian Tactician Podcast. I am your host, Adam Yates. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with me today. I hope that uh, that you are doing well in your life, that you are feeling the Lord's blessing. I'm hoping that if you are one of my uh, regular listeners, that some of the things that I've talked about has spurred some thoughts in your heart, that perhaps you have made some changes, you've started looking at things a little bit different, and that you are, are feeling the blessings of God, that you are recognizing Him as He's working in your life. Uh, I know that that's my my goal. That's my desire. I want to make sure that you are are hearing in a way that's understandable, and in a way that that you can put to use in your life. How to make those Christ-like changes in your life? You know, uh, I do believe, and I say this every single time that that the Lord He created you. He knew what He was doing when He made you. He He purposed you to be a man and a God who is able to make someone with purpose is able to put them in a place and lead them so that they can accomplish what he wants. And that's what God wants for you. He created you with purpose. He knows how to get you where he wants for you to be. Our job is to follow. Our job is to listen. Our job is to examine our life, see how we stack up against the example, against the uh, pattern of Christ. And our job, ultimately, life is about change. Life is about making changes. And, and you know, we find Everybody, throughout our entire life, we change. We change as we grow. We change as we understand things. We change as we interact with people or people come and go out of our lives. We, we should be constantly looking at how we can perfect this walk in life. This is our one opportunity. Uh, I, I find more and more that I am so aware of time. You know, it's uh, December 14th when I'm recording this, 2019. It seems like it was just yesterday that uh, I was uh, standing in front of our congregation here, and it was a brand new year, January of 2019. I mean, it just seems like just yesterday. Time is going by quickly. And with that time going by quickly, you probably recognize it going faster and faster in your life as well. We recognize the short time that we have to have an effect in the lives of others, the short time that we have to make positive changes in our life. I think I would be correct in assuming that if you have spent the time to listen to me thus far, it's because you have a belief in God. And you recognize that there is something that is beyond this life. You know, time keeps marching towards that place, towards that time when we stand before him. What is that going to be like? Are you going to have made those decisions? Are you going to have spent that time living and and working towards a Christ-like walk, following after the pattern of his son, that ultimate man that we should aspire to be like? Dogs also bark at what they do not know. I love that. I love that saying because in my mind it gives me such a clear picture. You know, I remember as a cop, I'd be uh, the the neighborhoods I oftentimes worked in, you know, there was two dogs that were that were popular. One was a chihuahua, the other one was a pit bull. You know, both of them, when you come walking up, they couldn't see over the fence. You come walking up to a house or in an area, and man, those dogs would bark and bark and bark and bark and bark until they actually saw you. And whether chihuahua or pit bull, when they saw a big hulking guy that I was, most of the time, they would run. You know, this is the way that, that humans are. When we don't know and don't understand something, it, it causes us concern, and we're afraid of it. And, and you, if you've listened to my previous podcasts, you know exactly where I stand on this, is that I believe that's the way our society is with Christian manhood. Because manhood over the years has been watered down, it's been dumbed down, it's either been made stupid, or it's been made to be oppressive. And, and neither of those things is Christ-like manhood. That, that's, the, that's the whole drive, that's the whole push behind uh, my, my podcasts, is I want us to, to be able to show your wife, show your children, show your co-workers, show those people around you 
What does a Christ-like man look like? He's not oppressive. He's not stupid. He's self-controlled. He's caring. He's considerate. He's clothed in humility. He is, in all aspects, making every effort to be like Jesus Christ. So what are our four aspects of a man, our four qualities, these four things that, that I've spent podcasts before talking about that I want us to think about? A man is a man of action. He doesn't stand by idle. He doesn't stand by idle. He doesn't stand by idle in his life. He doesn't watch as his family, as those who are under his care, are, are ravaged and destroyed by sin, by the world, by all of these things. He's a man of action. He doesn't stand by idly. If he sees something in his life that needs to be changed, that needs to be remedied, he takes action against it. He's a man of action. He's not afraid of work. He's not afraid. A man is a man of responsibility. He desires and he accepts responsibility. He recognizes that he has a job that was given to him by the Lord himself. And he grabs a hold of that and with his whole heart, he wants to fulfill that expectation that his Lord and his Savior gave him. Not only does he accept the responsibility that comes with being a man or being with a husband or being with a father or a friend or any of those things, he wants it. A Christ-like man wants responsibility. Isaiah stood before the Lord in this vision, and the Lord said, Who will go for us? And he said, Here am I. You send me. Desires that responsibility. A man is a man of leadership. He leads from the front. He's visible. He's setting the standard. And you know, that aspect of leadership isn't just that, that a leader is out there ready to fight every battle. It's that he's there in service, in selflessness, putting others before him. He leads his family in prayer. He leads in his relationship with his wife. And ensuring that she's happy, ensuring that they take care of problems, uh, he's the leader in that. He's the leader in saying, I'm sorry. He's the leader in forgiving. He's the one who sets the standard. Understand this, men, husbands, your children will by and large follow the example of those they see the most, and that is their parents. And so that's you. And so if you are not a man of leadership, if you're not a man who, who, uh, who is making every effort to lead like Christ did, you may be setting your children up for failure. And lastly, a man is a man of expectation. To me, that's the most stirring and the most important part of these four aspects of a man. Expectation. Why we do this. Looking forward. Seeing that there is something at the end of this race of life. We're looking forward to that end. We recognize that there is a reason. Today, we're going to talk about how to have a fight. And you might have your eyes open because I'm kind of setting you up with that. In every aspect of our life, we need to be men of expectation. Where are we going? Where is this going? Where is this relationship? Where is this conversation? Where is this job opportunity? Whatever it is. Men of expectation. Why is it worth it for me to follow Christ? Why is it worth it for me to not do all of those things that as a man, as a human, I might want to do? And, and I've spent a couple of podcasts dedicated to that. To me, that's, that's, a, that's an aspect and that's something I'm going to come back to continually because we need to be reminded, men, be men of godly expectation. It is worth it to serve God. There is blessing in abundance, but it just doesn't come free. It comes with sacrifice. It comes with humility. It comes with all of these things that are difficult for us. It's putting others and, and you know others being your family, your friends, others being the Lord ahead of you. Consider those things. So my title for this is How to Fight. As I, as I sat down and prepared this, I realized this is going to have to be a two-part podcast. And so 
Uh, if you've listened to me before, you know that sometimes I do get a little lengthy on these podcasts, and so you can anticipate that that we're going to. I don't know how long this one's going to go, but there's no way that I'm going to be able to put out everything that I want to in in just one podcast. And so I I have this. Uh, I have six points in this first part, and then my second part, I hope to give a whole lot of advice and just some direction and things because of some uh, things that I've been involved in as a minister and and some friendships and things I have. You know, I found myself and I find myself frequently in this position that I I, I enjoy. I enjoy being able to uh, help people and be able to help uh, try to work with them through struggles that they have in their life. And I find myself frequently, and I'm not calling out anybody. I know that there's people who listen to this who know me, and I will not ever name names. Uh, nor am I trying to be very specific when I give examples here, but as you hear some of these things, you might hear something that sounds like you. And and uh, I, I'm going to hope that you're not going to be offended, but that you're going to consider these things. Because I've spent quite a bit of time lately talking to people who are having some struggles in their marriage. And one thing that I recognize is that we, uh, in our society, you know, one reason why marriages fail is because we don't know how to communicate with each other. It's something that has been diminished. Communication is diminished in a lot of ways. I love text messaging. But there is no personal connection with a text message, with an email. We don't like to talk on the phone. And even a phone call is a separation when it comes to real communication because so much of communication is done uh, visually. So much is done, you know, you can communicate all sorts of things by body language and all that. And that's a way that we connect. But we suck. We suck at communication. And because of it, our marriages fail. And so uh, my title here is How to Fight. And and then my subtitle is, you know, Considering Your Marriage and Relationships. And so I have some points here. And the first point that I have is don't. Don't fight. Now, that's a very simple statement for a very complex thing. But I want you to consider something here for a second. I want you to consider just, I, I have two definitions here. One is fight. Okay, fight the definition here. I typed it into Google, and this is the first definition that come popping up. Fight, to quarrel or argue, to endeavor vigorously to win, to struggle or campaign against. And then the second one I have is the word argue. Argue, to exchange or express diverging or opposite views, typically in a heated or angry way. You know, as you hear these two words, as you hear a word fight or argue, you know, when we know these, you know, I'll have people tell you, oh, my wife and I got in a fight yesterday. Oh, we had this huge argument. When I hear these words, these are the definitions that pretty much come to mind. A fight to me is something where two people are, are going in there into combat with each other, whether it's verbally or physically, whatever it is, and arguing to me, is two people going after each other about a different view, a different thought process, an idea. It's different than a conversation. Um, it's different than a discussion where two people might be trying to to uh, elaborate on their feelings in one way or another with the hopes of convincing someone of, 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 their, of where they're coming from. Fighting and arguing, to me, ultimately, each of these uh, things, whether it's a fight or an argument, and, and, and those words are pretty much synonymous with each other in my opinion, both of these words, these ideas, these actions, they ultimately end in a winner and a loser. And even if there happens to be a stalemate, right? We had a fight and we came to no conclusions. There's still damage done on each side and there is a loser. And I, I want you to think about this, that are you looking to make your spouse a loser? Now, that sounds really weird, huh? Is that your desire in your marriage and your relationship? Is that you uh, become victorious over this person? that you have promised to share your life with? Does it accomplish anything? If my wife and I see something different and it, and it gives emotion and I get frustration and I, and I want her to do something my way and I begin to get upset and I begin to go into this 
exchange or expressing my opposite view and I'm getting heated and all that, somehow this resolves itself that she says, I see what you're saying, is, is the fact that there's damage done, does that make it worth it? You know, ultimately, we are in relationships to build relationships to be stronger. And in your marriage, it's purpose that you become one. That oneness doesn't happen the moment you take vows. That oneness is something that continues to happen throughout your marriage. It happens as you're intimate with each other, not only physically intimate in the act of having sex, but also intimate in sharing feelings and emotions and opinions. And when we have a winner and a loser, there is no one. You know, if you if you think about it, when we have an argument, oftentimes it's because we want someone to come to our opinion, or we want somebody to see where we're coming from. But if, if any of you think that you can talk, you can say enough words, enough things to change somebody's mind, you're absolutely crazy. The only way somebody changes is if they become convinced themselves that they want to make that change, that they understand that point, that it makes sense to them. You may offer up the evidences to it, but ultimately it has to be them who comes to that decision. You can't argue or yell or scream or fight somebody into seeing things your way. And so ultimately, if you're having a discussion or a disagreement about something, and you start having emotion and anger become involved, you're really not going to accomplish anything except for you're going to begin to dredge up hurt and pain and difficulty. You know, the, the best way that I have found to have a, a, a differing discussion with my wife is simply to calmly let her see the reasons why I feel the way I do, hear out her reasons, let some time go to, to have both of us kind of consider it, come back and talk about it again. Ultimately, if I want her to see things my way, I need her to come to that conclusion herself. We can't stuff it down somebody's throat, even when there's evidence to the contrary. And, you know, I just have a little note here that says, why is it that there's still a segment of the population that believes the world is flat? Is it ignorance? Is it whatever it is? You know, there's, there's no shortage of evidence to the opposite side, but someone has to be convinced for them to actually take it and to own it. So the first thing I want to encourage you to do is not to fight. There is no point in it because when you get done having a screaming match, even if all of a sudden your wife's like, okay, I see it now. After all this yelling and screaming, I see it now. There is still damage that is done and your oneness is hurt. And I'll tell you that for myself, and I'm going to go into that here in just a little bit, but you know, I made this choice in my relationship with my wife when we started dating. I said, we will. I will not fight with you. We can have a discussion and differing opinions. We will not let emotion. We will not get frustration do it. We're not going to yell at each other, raise our voices. I'm not going to slam doors. I'm not going to do anything like that. I can't do it. I can't. And a little bit farther, I'll kind of get into why. But that first point, don't do it. Don't fight. I'm going to talk about some ways that you can get around that, that you can, that you can handle that. But ultimately, I want you to understand that you have control. And my number two point here is that you choose not to. This actually isn't that hard. We choose to do or not to do things all the time, even things that come with a great deal of emotion. Every one of you knows what it's like to have somebody cut him off in traffic and almost make you crash as you're driving down the road with you know, your kids or whatever it is, and somebody cuts you off, and it brings up emotion and anger. You know, as a cop, police officer, I can't tell you how many times I had somebody who was in handcuffs, I'd arrested them, and they spit in my face. And yet I didn't beat them down, but it made me angry. The emotion welled up within me, but I controlled myself. I chose not to break their nose. Self-control is one of many marks of a man. And I want you to think about that. We make choices all the time. You are not going to be able to choose when something elicits emotion in you. There are still things to this day in my life that while I feel like I have I have matured so much in the way that I in the way that I view people and how they interact with me, there's still things that bring up emotion. 
anger, frustration, hurt, whatever it is. I can't control the emotion. Emotion's going to come. Sometimes my wife says things that, that, that upset me, that emotion wells up. But I have control over the action and over the desired outcome. I have control. I can, you know, my wife says something that hurts me or that makes me upset. I control what I do from that point. So often we say, well, I just couldn't, I just couldn't help it. I just couldn't control myself. Man, that is, that is such garbage. That is absolute garbage. Don't, don't buy into that. Don't buy into that. You have control. And if there's one thing that I've seen in life that most people hate is to not have control, to not have control. You know, that's one of the things, the police officer, that I was taught. I had this uh, this class sergeant who said, he says, you know, you are being given the obligation and the right to take away something that is so precious, especially to Americans. It's freedom and control. You will take it away from somebody and people will hate you for it. I hate not being in control of myself. There are times when I have to give up control. And, you know, especially in the walk of a Christian, I give up control to Christ. I give up control to God in my life. I try to let him dictate where I go and things that I do, but it's always a challenge. But but I have a choice, and I want you to think about that. When it comes to that argument, that that thing that your wife says, that thing that, that is just there uh, bubbling underneath of the surface there, you know, you have control in your life, you have control in your relationship of if you choose to make something into a battle or if you choose to speak softly, to pursue peace. You know, I'm not saying that you always choose to agree or that you become a doormat. Not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you don't get to have an opinion. I'm saying that we make a choice of where we go when we find ourselves with our spouse or with people in our life, your boss, whatever it is. When you find yourself on differing ends of the spectrum and it comes to having some sort of a conversation, you're looking for a good outcome. Choose not to let emotion run you. Choose not to let emotion cause anger or frustration. Choose not to. Choose not to lash out. If that means you have to walk away, then communicate that. You know what? This is frustrating me. I'm going to go ahead and walk away for a couple minutes, and I just want to think about this, and I want to come back to have a calm conversation because I want a good outcome. So I want you to think about this. You make choices all the time. You choose not to lash out at people all the time who make you angry and frustrated. So why is it that we feel like we have a right to lash out at our wife when she makes us angry or frustrated? You know, we didn't marry her so that we had a punching bag available whenever we needed it. I have number three here. This is something, man, this is a pet peeve of mine. Do not yell. Do not throw things. I I, I just want to tell you this, you know, uh, again, as a a police officer, I came to understand that, that yelling or screaming, it had its place. There actually was, it was a tool that was in my toolbox to use at the right and appropriate time. And, and so, you know, I come to this understanding and I think about this is, is that, you know, what was the place that yelling had for me as a cop? It was simply to show someone that I was there trying to get their attention and I was showing dominance over the situation. Somebody is doing something that they shouldn't. The police come there, and I am the one who is responsible for restoring order, direction, all of those things. People get wound up in emotion, and I yelled so I can simply try to snap them out of it and establish dominance. I am here. I am in charge. But I realized that while it may have been effective in getting attention and showing dominance over a situation, I lost any ability to have meaningful conversation afterward with very few exceptions. And why is that? No one likes to be talked down to. No one likes to be diminished. 
No one likes to be treated poorly. No one does. We, we don't want that. How, how many of you have gotten frustrated because you felt like you have been treated poorly? Someone yells at you. You know, I can't tell you how many people I've, I've uh, talked to who have told me about bad experiences with cops. Yeah, I know it happens. Right there, there are stupid cops out there. There are some cop yelled at me, and and you know afterwards, you know he was just a jerk. And it didn't matter what he did afterwards; he could have given you flowers. He yelled at you, and you were done, because no one likes to be talked down to, diminished, or treated poorly. You know, I, I have my note here. It says, "Consider this interaction finished." If you allow yourself to break down into yelling, nobody does well. Nobody does well, even if that person who you're yelling at doesn't yell back, they quiet, they, they, they stop, they pay attention, you've lost them. You've lost them. And if you are doing this in your relationship, if you are having disagreements that break down into yelling and screaming, you are a failure. You're a failure. You have not convinced that person of anything. You're trying to shove a, a, a square peg into a round hole. You're trying to hammer it in there. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Consider your interaction finished if you allow yourself to break down into yelling. Throwing things. Ah, we know people who do that, don't we? Hitting walls, yelling, they often, often denote the same thing, and that's a loss of control. I found myself in my life when I was younger, I had a terrible temper. One of the reasons why I had this discussion with my wife or with my future wife when we started dating and I said, I will not fight, was because I, had, I spent a lot of time getting control of my... Things would happen, I would get angry, and, and it would boil within me. And it was worth it to me to fight, to yell, to scream, to punch things. It ruined relationships. It frightened people. And when I grew up, when I matured, when I decided that I wanted to be a man, I realized that there was no way, there was no way that I could have a meaningful relationship if I was not able to, to have some control. And the best thing I could do is I really had to chasten and challenge myself that I will not let myself go there. I will not allow myself to lose control and to begin yelling and screaming, throwing things, hitting walls, punching things. You know, it's absolutely a lie. I've heard this. Man, I can't tell you how many houses I went into over the years I was a cop. Some domestic violence call that I went in there. And some guy says, well, I was just so mad I punched a wall. I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. And maybe that's you. Maybe you found yourself in your relationship that you had some argument, something like that, that you had with your spouse, and you found yourself punching something, punching a wall, walking away, yelling. I've seen people do it. They yell and punch something. Oh, I couldn't help it. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's an absolute lie. What you've shown is that you're a child. Sorry if that's hard and sorry if that hurts. My kids haven't learned how to control themselves, and so they lash out. For what reason? I find it interesting with my kids. Even now, my children recognize this, that throwing a fit never, ever has gotten them what they want. My children will tell you I have never screamed. I've never stomped my foot. I've never thrown something on the ground. I've never yelled. I've never thrown a fit and had mom and dad do what I wanted. Never, because they haven't learned self-control. And they haven't learned how to have uh, a meaningful conversation with mom and dad about how to accomplish or how to find some common ground on wh what they want to do versus what we want them to do. If you're a man who yells, screams, throws, punches things, consider yourself a child. Grow up. You have allowed yourself to lose control. We always have a choice. There is no magic word that someone can say that causes a person to actually lose control over their decisions and actions. There's no magic word or combination of words. It's stupid to even say it. I used to hear that all the time as a police officer. Well, they did such and such a thing and I just couldn't help myself. Baloney. There's no magic word. It's stupid. Don't be stupid. <laughs> you know, yelling, 
throwing things, hitting things, that's a choice, and we have control over it. Choose not to. I want you to consider something here. Consider that for the most part, men, we are bigger, stronger, faster, more intimidating than the women in our lives. For myself, I know when it comes to my wife and several other women in my life, uh, my mom, my sister, and some women that I interact with within our church and all that, I typically, you know, most of them are not good at confrontation or what they perceive as confrontation. I usually can think fast. I can formulate sentences and thoughts and, and come with points and counterpoints and all that, and I can just dominate them in an argument if I want to. I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm faster. I am certainly more intimidating than my wife. Most of us could if we choose to do just about anything we want. And your wife, she trusted herself with you physically, that you would not harm her, that you would treat her kindly and gently. And she also trusted you with her emotionally. You know, your wife, my wife, she's well aware of my ability to hurt her. She knows it. She's done the math in her head. This guy's bigger, stronger, faster. He could do anything he wants, but she trusted herself to me physically. She's well aware that as, as she has given her heart to me and she has told me all of her deepest things, that I have the ability to hurt her emotionally. I have this a little bit farther down, but I'm going to take this moment right here to mention this. You know, men, if you are at your job, within your friends, things like that, if you are speaking poorly about your wife, you are a child, do not ever do it. No one will ever hear me speak poorly about my wife. She's too precious to me. And she's entrusted herself fully to me. What would it do to her if she knew that I made fun of her to my friends? That I made her into some stupid idiot? Or because I was frustrated with her, I began to tell all these things that diminished her. No, no, no. I would never do that. You'll never hear me speak poorly about my wife. I'll speak highly of her always. And I know the same thing that she would do with me. I want you to think about that. You know, this is, it wasn't where I wanted to stick it in this particular podcast. But pause this and you think about it. Have you done this in your marriage? Your wife trusts you with her physically and emotionally. She's well aware of your ability to hurt her. And yet she's trusted you anyway. Do you trash her to others? If you're going through marital problems right now, do you tell other people as you're, as you're talking about your marital problems? And I get it. I get it, guys. I get it. that We, wanna, we want people to hear out our side and all of that. But you know, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you to come up higher. You know, because there's even a place, and you know, I'm just, I, sh I just thought of it just now. I, I wish I had sourced it. Maybe I'll, I'll put it in the comments. But you know, where in the New Testament, there's this conversation about one of the angels having a conversation with Satan. It says that angel wouldn't even be an accuser. It wasn't his place. Even when we're trying to make a point, even when we're trying to bring someone over to where we're at, someone to see that my wife is wrong, my right, you know, she's, she's hurt me, all these sorts of things, you know, don't ever be the accuser. Don't ever be the accuser. There is one who is an accuser. There is one who is a diminisher. There is one who is a trash talker, and that is Satan. That's his role. Scriptures say that he accuses the brethren day and night. Don't be that. Let's get back to this. Considering that most of us are bigger, stronger, faster, more intimidating than women in our lives, you know, our wives trust us. When you make a choice 
to throw something or to punch a wall because you're having an argument, you're so upset, all that sort of thing. A woman will naturally, your wife will naturally be concerned that she will be the next target. I can't tell you how many times as a police officer I went into a house where there was a fight that happened between a man and a woman and things were broken. There's holes in the wall. There's dishes crashed all over the place. There's all these things. And in the course of this conversation, this man tells me she knows I would never hurt her. (laughs) For any man who hits a wall or destroys something in a fight and says, she knows I would never hurt her. Okay, that man is ignorant or he's trying to convince himself that he wouldn't do that. What is the point of screaming, yelling, breaking, throwing, hitting, damaging things, whatever it is? You've lost control and you are on the doorstep of becoming an abuser physically. And I would also say that you have already become an emotional abuser at that point. And you didn't get married and become one to break somebody down. At least I hope you didn't, because if you did, you 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 got into your marriage uh, for the wrong reasons, and you are a broken person that needs some fixing, needs Christ to come in and begin to tune you up. I've heard guys say this. I just had to hit something so that I wouldn't hit her. Well, that makes it better. You are such a man of control that you just punched holes in the wall instead of punching her. Yeah, that, that shows something. It, it sounds ridiculous. You know, I can't tell you how many times I heard that. Well, I, I punched a hole, you know, I, I broke this, so I wouldn't do her, you know, so I wouldn't do that. You know, I just couldn't help myself. We would never, we would never accept that for somebody who, who says, well, that guy cut, cut me off in traffic and I just couldn't help myself, so I killed him. Man, don't be like that. If you are a man who who hits walls and things, and I'm not even talking about if you're abusive, uh, if you actually lay hands on your spouse, because there's a whole other problem there, and it needs to be absolutely fixed. And that's something that will cause damage emotionally and with trust and everything for a very long time. And only a, a 100% true turning to Jesus Christ in a lifetime of proving that you are not that person before is going to fix that. I'm assuming that if you are uh, physically abusing your spouse, that you're probably not listening to my podcast. But if you happen to be, I want to tell you that there is a way out. If you have found yourself in the in the shackles and in the and in the the captivity of that, there is a way out, and it's your choice. But again, to finish out this point, yelling, screaming, hitting things, all that. Oh, I just couldn't help myself. I just had to hit something so I wouldn't. Whatever it is, you know, you're on the doorstep of becoming something even more terrible. But the damage has already been done emotionally to that other person. It's one thing to physically defend yourself against a physical attack. I'm not going to say that you'd never be able to fight if someone's attacking you, but I'm telling you that words should have no ability to take us to the point that we are on the cusp of destructive actions. It's just not possible. Number four. I have here, number four, the golden rule must apply. We do unto others as we would have them do unto us. I, I, want, I want you to think about this because I, I just, I find this to be somewhat mind-boggling. How often we get upset because we don't feel that we've been treated the way that we should be treated. We've been disrespected, spoken down to, yelled or cursed at, whatever it is. And so what is our response? We do it right back. You didn't treat me with respect, so I'm not going to treat you with respect. You talked down to me, so I'm going to tell you how stupid you are. You yelled at me, so I'm going to yell right back at you. How does reciprocating that accomplish anything? Well, I want them to see. I want them to see that I'm not just going to be a doormat. There you go. You've showed them. Way to go. Let me, let me slow clap here for a second. Because it's accomplished so much. (laughs) It's stupid, guys. It's stupid. I don't like being yelled at, so I'm going to yell at you not to yell at me. 
It's, it's just, it's, it's dumb. And if you think about it, you'll realize how dumb it is. And I want you to think back in your relationship and think about all the times that you have lashed out at somebody because you have felt like you weren't being treated the way you felt like you were entitled to be or you should have been. And you bring yourself down to that level. Tell me how many times that has been a successful argument for you. Where was the win? The outcome that you wanted, was it there? Or was it simply that you wanted them to know that you can't hurt me, so I'll hurt you? It's childish. It's petty. 1 Corinthians in the 13th chapter, you know, it talks about all these aspects of love. And it says, you know, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought as a child, I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's so important that we consider that, that we put away childish things. Reciprocating doesn't accomplish anything. So I want to read a couple of scriptures. You notice that I haven't read any scriptures yet. I've referenced them, but I'm going to read a couple of scriptures here. Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 18 through 21. It says this, Paul talking, he says, If it be possible... As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So there's several things here I want to talk about. It says, if it's possible. You know, there are times when it's not possible to not fight. But I tell you, I haven't ever seen that in my relationship. I suppose if my wife were attacking me with a knife, then I would have to fight her. But there's never been anything that we had to have a discussion about that I said, oh, I I absolutely have to turn this into a screaming match. This is worth me expressing my anger. This is worth me trying to determine a winner and a loser. It just hasn't happened. I can't think of an example. Perhaps there's an outlier example out there. But in general, we should be pursuing peace with our spouse. You should be pursuing peace with your wife all the time. That doesn't mean you're rolling over. That means that you're pursuing peace. It means that you are endeavoring for the oneness that you got into this relationship for. You know, we, we, we got into our marriage. We got into to our relationship, not to be two people, but to be one. It says, avenge not yourself. Don't go after somebody. That's not, that's not where it's supposed to be. It says, give place unto wrath. Control it. Control your emotion. It wells up. You know, find a way. Pray about it. Lord, help me. I'm, I'm struggling with anger. I mean, that's what I did in my life. That's what I did in my life. I, I came to this point where I saw, you know, my anger, the, the way that I get this short fuse that I have, it's ruining. It's ruining a good life. And I had to ask the Lord, you got to help me with this. And he helped me. And I also had to exercise self-control. I gave place to it. I put it where it was supposed to be. Verse 20 here is, is something that, that I want you to think about. And I've had a conversation, several conversations lately about this. It says, If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. So, for in so doing, thou shalt reap coals of fire on his head. You know, I, I, I hate to consider your spouse, your wife, as an enemy. But really what it's talking about is when somebody's in opposition to you, what is your response? My enemy's hungry, so I give him something to eat. He's thirsty, so I give him something to drink. I don't do what they expect. I actually find myself motivated by care and concern for them. You know, Christ says that you that you pray for your enemies, those that despitefully use you. He says, you know, that you do good. You know, this says, in doing so, you shall heap fires of coal upon his head. You know, it's kind of a, a weird a statement or a weird thought, you know, the way I understand that is when we do something that is opposite what somebody expects, when they are frustrated, angry, lashing out, whatever it is, and we act with care and concern and humility for them, something happens that they that they begin to recognize where they're coming from, what they're doing. It's hard to be 
mean to someone who's being nice, isn't it? It's just it's just hard. It's it's difficult to do. And what it does is it helps to open somebody's eyes. A whole lot of our life and a whole lot of our responsibility as men and as husbands is simply to influence. I arrested I'm I'm just gonna say I, I know it's more than this, but let's say a thousand people. I arrested a thousand people over the course of my career. I did not change any one of them. None of them when they found themselves in the handcuffs of Officer Gates, was like, oh, man, I'm going to become a priest now. I'm, I'm going to go become a monk. I'm going to become a nun and give my life over. And me interacting and throwing handcuffs on them didn't change anything. I was an influencer. Putting my handcuffs was part of my influence, but conversations and things were there. You know, I was an influencer. Our actions will influence other people. If your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in doing so thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. I want you to try this. If you are struggling in your marriage, if you and your wife find yourself at odds and, and, and throwing daggers of hurt back and forth at each other, I want you to work on being kind and being loving and being humble, not retaliating, not giving strike for strike, but being patient and loving and see what happens. Man, it's really hard to beat down somebody who's treating you, you know, kindly. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Contention. Contention is evil. You know, in the Book of Mormon, Christ says, contention is not of me. Christ is not about contention. Speaking of Christ, I want you to consider Christ. I'm going to read I'm going to read Isaiah 53, 7 through 12. And, and you know, and I could have just done verse 7, but I, I wanted you to think this whole thing through. Think about Christ. I'm calling you to Christ-like manhood. Think about Christ. Christ. His whole life was about putting everybody else in front of him. There were times when even he'd been traveling and all that we recognize Christ. It's not like he had a house to go home to. Here he is. He is God on earth. He is God and man. Okay. He didn't have a castle. He didn't go and sit in a nice, comfy, lazy boy, stick his feet up at the end of the day. He was, I'm sure he was filthy and dirty. And he was always, you know, uh, someone else was providing a bed for him. Someone else was providing food. Um, he was walking. It wasn't like he got to ride everywhere. There wasn't mass transit. There was his feet. You know, people were following him, and they all had needs. They all had needs. And you, know, you find this account. This isn't what I'm reading here, but you find this account where he just needed to go up into the mountain to be by himself. He sent the, the disciples across. You go over here. I'm going to meet you there. I just need some time. I just need some time. And he couldn't even get that time because when the people saw him, they just came to him. You know, everything in his life was about this golden rule, putting other people in front of him. Doing unto others as he would have them to do unto him, you know, uh, uh, preferring and, and treating well, you know. So I want you to consider Christ. Consider this, you know, as I'm talking about, I want you to look at the totality of his life. Isaiah 53, 7 through 12. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. When he hath put him to grief, then thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed and prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and made intercession 
for the transgressors. You know, I have in my notes here, why didn't Christ lash out? What happened in the garden? All of a sudden, this gang of people show up, and he knew what they were going to do. He knew what his future held. He knew that he was going to go somewhere, and they were going to beat him to a bloody pulp, literally. Just beat him bloody. And they were going to spit on him, and they were going to do these terrible things. And ultimately, he was going to drag this big old piece of wood up to the top of this hill, where they were going to hammer nails into him. He was going to hang there, and he was going to slowly suffocate to death. He knew all of this. When others were trying to hurt him, his desire was not to hurt others. Man, that, that's something else, isn't it? I mean, even Peter was like, heck no, we're not going to do this. He pulls out his sword, and he's like, I'm, I'm going to fight them off. I'm going to give strike for strike. And Christ told him, no. No, no, I'm not going to have you strike down somebody even in saving of me. It was this example of being able to endure. You know, I I have here in my notes, it, it was about expectation. There is something always to be gained by humility, by temperance, by patience. You know, in this reading in Isaiah, you know, it says that that when these things happened, it says in verse 10, it says, you know, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And verse 12 says, I'll divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. You know, there is blessing. There is blessing by God. When we choose not to retaliate, we choose not to go back. When we, when we act with humility, being humble, you got into your relationship because you put that other person, or at least this is, this is what I, I, I hope was the motivation, was to put that other person above you because you cared for him so deeply. So why would you hurt them? We have to be. There's something to be gained by temperance, by tempering what we say. There's, there's things all the time that I could say, guys, that it even comes into my mind. I could say this and I could stick a, stick a knife right in them and twist it. Oh, man, but that's just not Christ. Number five, words do hurt. I'm probably not the only guy listening to this who was picked on as a kid. With one exception, I was never beat up. I had one, one time I had a kid who was roughing me up. But other than that, I never had anybody lay hands on me. But man, their words had a powerful effect on me. There's that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Words do hurt. They are among the most painful things. And I want you to consider that in your relationship. And, and to make this point, I'm going to read James chapter 3, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 1 through 18. It says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. I'm going to stop there for a second. It says, you know, if a man doesn't make, give offense in the things that he says, he says he's complete. We're perfect. He's complete. And he's able to bridle the whole body. He's found a way to control all of the human emotions and, and things that well up. You can control where your mind goes and where your words go. Verse 3, Behold, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about by a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison, Therewith we bless God, even the Father, and therewith we curse men, 
which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt, water, and fresh. Who is a wise man and endowed with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his words with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace." There's a lot that, that was said here, but I, you know, so there's a place just north of the valley here where I live, you know, a half hour north of Phoenix here, not even that, you know, it begins to climb in elevation and it gets to three, 4,000, 4,500 feet, something like that. You know, the whole topography changes obviously as you go up, but also the vegetation and everything. And, you know, as a kid, I used to go up there. There's a place, well, I still go up there now, but there's a place back in there. It's called Seven Springs. It literally is a place where seven springs of water and different canyons all converge together. It's a beautiful place, and I still love going up there. I love going up there. I quail hunt. I deer hunt up there. Uh, call coyotes, all that sort of stuff. I love doing it up there. Many years ago, I, I I'm trying to think. I mean, it's got to be you know more than 15 years ago now. There was a there was a fire that came through. Now that area was kind of a high desert area, a little bit of scrub and things like that, but a lot of cedar, a lot of uh, cedar um, trees, uh, not real tall, but kind of cedar trees that you would imagine, you know, big bushy cedar trees and all that kind of spread throughout there. And and kind of some scrubby oak brush and all that through there. Anyway, maybe that's drawn a picture for you. Maybe it's not. You're like, I have no clue what that looks like. But imagine something, it's not a forest, but it's also not grassland. But there was a huge fire that came through. And that fire came through and it just rolled through that whole area. And there's a big mesa that is uh, on the northern kind of uh, border of... of uh, Phoenix here that that from where we live you can see and I remember in those days I remember sitting here at church and you could see the fire come over the mesa and it was working its way down that mountain and uh, so that fire came through and it came through years ago right and it burned up everything it burned up the trees and all that sort of stuff and even out there now you go out there there's skeletons of burned trees everywhere and it kind of clear cut the area right I mean it just burned everything well you know years years have passed and the area has recovered it's great for quail hunting. I go out there, I quail hunt. I mean, you know, there's deer out there. There's all that stuff. You know, it's recovered. But, you know, that area is never the same as it was. You know, James here, he talks about your tongue. Talks about, you know, when he's saying the tongue is a little member and boasts this great thing. It's just a small little piece of your body, but it does so much damage. It says the tongue is a fire. And, you know, I think about that, that, you know, this area that I love up there, you know, it was beautiful years ago. A fire came through and it devastated it and it's recovered, but it's never the same. There's evidence of fire everywhere. And I want you to think about that when it comes to your conversations with your spouse. You can say things that, that just damage. You can say things that damage them. And yes, you can apologize, you can repent and ask for their forgiveness, but you know, and and I'm not saying that your wife is going to hold it against you, but what I'm going to say is it's never the same. It's never the same. I'm not saying that you saying something hurtful to your wife is going to ruin your relationship forever. I'm not saying that, but what I'm telling you is there is always some damage that has been done. And it might recover, but it's never quite the same. And, and there are things that we can say that may always have a lasting effect on your spouse. I tell you what, you ever tell your wife that she's overweight, you, you will hurt her. 
even if she says it to you. I'm not saying that you lie to your wife, but I am going to tell you that your job is to build her up. That's your job. What we say should be to build her up. You demean her intelligence that's going to last. It's a lasting thing. And I'll tell you that one mark of, a, uh, of an abuser, of an abusive man, is demeaning that other person, whether it's telling them they're ugly, telling them they're stupid, whatever it is. It's emotionally destructive. Don't do it. Don't do it. Words hurt. I, I see this pattern, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I see this pattern sometimes in people, and it's an evidence of their immaturity, that we get upset, and so we begin to point out things that we know is going to hurt somebody else. Oh, yeah, well, I remember the time that you did this and that, you know, and you always, you always this, and you always that. Oh, yeah, well, you're stupid, you know, and we get in this tit for tat, and I say, I call it throwing darts. We throw darts at each other, and, you know, there's nobody who has a more effective dart than your spouse because they know everything about you. They know your, or at least they should know, your deepest, darkest secrets, frustrations, fears. They know what you look like when you're naked. They know, you know all these things. They have the most potent ammunition. Don't use it. Don't use it. It is the tool of Satan. You know, here in this reading, it says, If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth, because that is wisdom that is not from above, but it's earthly, it's sensual, it's devilish. It only makes you feel good for a moment. You throw a little dart at somebody because you're upset, and you see it hurt them, and you're like, yes. But what happens later? There should be regret, because you've damaged something. You've damaged something. Where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. We cannot feel like at any point in your life, I've said this in previous podcasts, I want you to think about this, you can never be successful using the weapons of Satan. You can't fight a Christian fight with the weapons of Satan. It just doesn't work. That's why Christ didn't lash out with anger, even though we would look at it and we would say, falsely accused, being beaten for no reason, he's going to be drug away, all these things. He has every right to do it, to be angry and frustrated, and absolutely he did He had that right. He should have been. I would have been. Christ wasn't. Why? He can't fight with Satan's weapons. You can't be successful using Satan's weapons. Anger is not Christ. You act out in anger, and you're using Satan's weapons. You say something because you know it's going to hurt somebody. You are using Satan's weapons. You will never be victorious. Never. Words hurt. Be careful. Be careful what you say. Be careful how you treat this person who you love, who you got, uh, who you made this commitment together with because you wanted to become one. And I know it's hard. I'm saying hard things. Being a man is hard. I've never pulled punches there. And if you're ever somebody who has had a conversation with me about a struggle in your life, I've told you this. I realize that I'm saying difficult things. Guess what? Being a man is hard. You either choose to do it or you choose to roll over and give in. There's blessing in being a Christ-like man. I'm going to get to my sixth point. I told you this is going to be a, a, a long one here. Um, try to draw this to a close, and I'm going to have a part two. <sighs> Number six, about fighting. You know, what we allow to make us upset. So I, I want to just say a couple things here. You know, getting into a conflict, getting into an argument or something like that over the emotions of somebody else is absolutely pointless. I can't tell you how many times I've had people who they get upset because their wife is hurt or angry or whatever it is. She's got no right to be. (laughs) Emotions are not necessarily rational, guys. Emotions are unique to every person. 
And it's really difficult to talk someone out of their emotions because they have little ability to decide how they feel about something. Think about that for a second. There are things that still elicit, that still bring up emotion in me, even though I feel like I've matured quite a bit in my spiritual walk, quite a bit, um, you know, I've matured. There are still things that bring out emotion. And it's not like I choose, I'm going to let this make me angry. It just wells up all of a sudden. It's something in me. It's like, that bothers me. Now, I've worked on those things, and I feel like the Lord has really helped me in that, but there's still things that elicit emotion. And, uh, and, I, and I think that this is something that you, you need to begin to recognize in your marriage. You know, your wife is going to be, by and large, far more of an emotional creature than you. If you let that bother you, you will be miserable. You know, uh, I think it's in, in the book of Peter, you know, that it talks about, you know, Peter talks about that, you know, we're supposed to, to dwell with our wives with knowledge. Get to get to know her. You get to get to, to get to the place where you kind of understand where she's coming from. It's not where I'm coming from, but I know that this is going to make my wife feel such and such a way. But you also need to understand that there's going to be emotions and things that come up that you're not going to understand. You can get upset about it, and it will get you nowhere because you're not going to change it, nor are you going to understand it, or you can learn how to, how to move and work within those things. You know, our emotions, we can't necessarily stop a feeling from coming, but we control where it takes us. This is exactly why we don't kill that person who cuts us off in traffic, even though it makes us mad. Because we choose not to. This guy cuts me off. I choose not to run him off the road and beat him into a bloody pulp. He made me angry, but I made a choice with what I did with it. Part of being a man is overcoming our humanity, and we do this by putting Christ's word to use. Now, I want to read here. In the Book of Mormon and the Book of Alma, I'm going to read chapter 5, and I'm going to read verse 38 and 39. It says, Now, my beloved brethren, I have said these things unto you that I might awaken you to a sense of your duty to God, that you might walk blameless before him, that you might walk after the holy order of God after which you have been received. And now I would that you should be humble and submissive and gentle, easy to be entreated, full of patience and long-suffering, being temperate in all things, being diligent in keeping the commandment of God. You know, Christ's word and Christ's example is an example of humility. Others in front of us. It's submissive. Everything his father asked him to do, he did. Gentle. He, he, he didn't give strike for strike. Easy to be entreated. Patient. Long-suffering. As we do this, we begin to uh, come into control of our humanity and become more Christ-like. What does practicing these things accomplish? You know, I want you to, to just a couple of scriptures here to draw to a close. Romans 12, 20 and 21, a reminder here. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Proverbs 15 and 1, if you've talked to me about struggles in your life or in your marriage, you've heard me talk about this one over and over again. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. If you answer calmly, lovingly, peacefully, it's hard. It's hard when you treat somebody kindly to be angry. It says grievous words, hard words, angry words, stirs up anger. Lead in giving a soft answer. Lead in these things. I'm going to finish here with a reading in Mosiah in the Book of Mormon, chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. And this is a, a king, a righteous king, a good king. And he knows he's going to die. He calls all the people together, and he gives this, this dissertation, this sermon as he's coming in. And I want to just make a quick point at the end of this, of this part one here. So Mosiah, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. 
I say unto you that as I have suffered to spend my days in your service, even up to this time, and have not sought gold nor silver nor any manner of riches of you, neither have I suffered that you should be combined in dungeons, nor that you should make slaves of one another, nor that you should murder or plunder or steal or commit adultery, or even I have not suffered that you should commit any manner of wickedness. And I have taught you that you should keep the commandments of the Lord in all things which he hath commanded you. And I, even myself, have labored with my own hands that I might serve you, that you should not be laden with taxes, that there should not anything come upon you which was grievous to be borne, and all these things which I have spoken, your witnesses of this day. And yet, my brethren, I have not done these things that I might boast. Neither do I tell these things that thereby I might accuse you. But I tell you these things that you might know that I can answer a clear conscience before God this day. Behold, I say unto you that because I said to you that I've spent my days in your service, I do not desire to boast, for I've only been in the service of God. And behold, I tell you these things that you might learn wisdom, that you may learn that when you're in the service of your fellow beings, you were only in the service of your God. Behold, you've called me your king. And if I, whom you call your king, do labor to serve you, then had ye not also to labor to serve one another? And behold, also, if I, whom you call your king, have spent his days in your service, and yet hath been in the service of God, doth merit any thanks from you? Oh, how had you ought to thank your heavenly king? You know, in this dissertation, he says quite a few things. And he says, you know, as, as king, I had this opportunity to lord over you. And it was reasonable. It would have been reasonable as king for you to support me and do all those things he said. But instead, everything I did was to lift you up. I labored with my own hands so I could serve you. I taught you. I encouraged you. I strengthened you. And he says, you know, I did these things not so that I could boast, so that I could come here and say, look at everything that I've done for you. How many times have you been in an argument with your spouse when you bring that up? Look at everything that I've done for you. This man didn't say that. He said, I didn't serve you so that I could put myself up on a pedestal or I could rub your nose in it. No, I did it because I've been in the service of a God that I love, who calls me to be self-sacrificing to others, who gave me this responsibility, not that I could lord over or so that I could win every battle with you guys, but so that I could serve you. Because ultimately, I'm serving God. This is a dissertation about a lot of things, and it's about expectation. This is why he did it. Ultimately, the way that we treat each other is a reflection of our position and our belief in God. Consider that. You know, there's this place, and it's talking about the way that the people were interacting when they were taking the sacrament, but it's in 1 Corinthians in the 11th chapter, and Paul's talking about it. He says, if you bite and devour each other, be careful that you're not consumed of each other. When we just start beating against each other, you know, there's no victory there. The way we treat each other is a reflection of our position and our belief in God. It's that way in your marriage, in your relationships. So this is part one of how to fight. Don't do it. Don't do it. There is a better way. There's a better way that brings happiness, peace in your home, peace in your life. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's difficult. Sometimes you're the one who's going to be offering up a soft word, a kind word every time. But we are in the business of influencing people. And when you are acting as Christ, others are going to see it. They're going to be influenced by it. Your wife wants to be led by a godly man. Arise from the dust and be men.